Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hey, everybody, Pascal here. I am here at Disrupt Disruption together with Gianni Giacomelli. And I'm super stoked for this conversation because it will take us, I am sure, into a slightly different angle, slightly different direction than what we've heard so far from our guests. Gianni has a really interesting background. He wears many, many hats, but two big ones. One is he's the chief innovation officer at Genpack really focused on driving the company into the future. And then also he's the head of innovation design at the MIT Collective Intelligence Design Lab, where he thinks a lot about the future of innovation um, in a particular way. And I think we'll get into this, so I don't want to uh, spoil the beans here. Gianni, super cool to have you on this conversation here. Happy to be here. Thank you. Gianni, my first question is always, um, I, I just want to understand how do you even think about, in your world, how do you even think about innovation and disruption? Are these two different things for you? Is there a gray zone in between? How do you go about this? I mean, innovation can be technically done in an incremental manner, right? So if you think about horizon of investment, for example, for innovation, that's, you have a horizon one and potentially part of the horizon two, which is current products, a little bit tweaks here and there, and uh, Horizon 2 can be you know, a little bit, we change one of those dimensions, but not too much. The reality, though, is that you need to play those, but you also need to play the long game, the, the game that is more uncomfortable, which is the disruption game. And the disruption game is as much a strategy and idea game as it is a change management game. And, and that requires a whole set of different muscles and, and whatnot. So innovation can be both, but, but it needs to probably be done on, on both sides. Otherwise, you'll actually get to a point in which the company ossifies itself. You already said something which made my ears prick up in the disruption game, this duality, these two sides of the coin you need to manage. In your experience, how do companies you work with actually successfully go about this? Not many, right, to start with. It's really hard because as you will know, what made you successful has created a muscle that may not be in the right place for the next uh, move, right? I mean, you might have been a fantastic cricketer, but now the new game in town is called tennis. Well, there's still a ball, but a bunch of your muscles are not the same. And one of the first things that companies to do is to reallocate resources, right? You, you got to start exercising the muscle and creating muscle memory for swings uh, you didn't take before which means that some people will not make the cut, some organizations will need to be resized, budgets need to be zero-based, and all that kind of stuff is, is really hard. So some companies are good at that. Some companies are actually good at moving money and people quickly. And those are the companies that really manage to get it done well. I'm not sure if our company is the only one that's doing a decent job at that, but at least we have the eye on that ball. It sounds very painful, and it sounds very hard for companies to do because you need to go against the grain. You need to go against the very thing which might have made you successful in your metaphor, all the skills you learned to play cricket. But so how do you practically make this work? Yeah, and, and by the way, I didn't say there's quarterly targets to hit. Hmm. I, I didn't say that. So, but I'm going to say that now. 
which means that you still need to float the boats with the speed that you have because your investors want that. But at the same time, depending on the company you are, they really want to see a trajectory to the future. I would say there are probably multiple things, but just to make it simple, uh, different personas in a company, right? I mean, I, I am a firm believer that when you change things, it is the system that changes. It's not the individual Jani or a couple of other people. And so persona board uh, member and persona management team at the top, what they need to do is to be able to build the capabilities for them to not feel threatened and build the capacity in their teams so that they will end up on the receiving end of the positive sides of, of innovation. So that's at that level, right? And make sure that that doesn't scare you more than that because you think that you can get there. I mean, unless you're close to retirement, in which case you don't care and you'll move over. But most people need to get to a point in which they feel, I can be the captain of a boat that has that thing. And, and the capacity in their teams needs to be built. And then you move below, it's all about budgets at the end of the day. And it's all about budgets of money to invest and the right people in the right positions. When I say the right people in the right position, I also talk about training, retraining at scale. And retraining at scale is not just sending a couple of people to Harvard to do a course. It's really about giving people enough time and creating enough of a corpus of knowledge and getting enough uh, experts who are ready and able to share so that the people below three, four, five levels below the management team meeting also feel that can be the captain of the next ship, mm -hmm. right? And so you can deploy them and, and they're going to be effective. They're going to be, by the way, effective and not scared of the next guy so they can be collaborative. But at the same time, they know what they're doing, right? And, uh, and, and they'll actually do the job, that the new job, not the old job. In this context, how do you reconcile this question of often you need to keep doing the old thing because it pays the bills, right? It's where often the cash flow is generated for the company, which gives you then the permission to do the new thing. How do you reconcile those two worlds where you've got the old and then you've got the new? Well, look, I mean, one of the best books that I've read about this, and I mean, I can tell you I have my own recipe, but I've read a bunch of books. And one of the ones that I really like best is Jeffrey Moore, Zone to Win. It's all about having a team in which you place people and resources in places where they play the new and they play the old. And then they move around, depending on how much you need to play the new and the old. It's, it's all budgets in the end. It's all organizational structures. It's all about keeping vitality for the future, but also keeping enough bench for the past so that you're not going to cut off the cash flow that then needs to fuel the future. That's in theory what management teams are supposed to do, by the way. I mean, that's the reason why it's called management team and not working team, right? Though, you know, one would assume that they work too, but they are supposed to manage the resources. That is the job, right? So, so that's, I think, the probably the best way to think about it. And your work, particularly your current work, is really in the space of collective intelligence. I'm curious, how do you feel this um, affect innovation disruption? Where do you see it go in the future, probably? Look, I think collective intelligence is one of the operating models that will rip apart entire industries. Just for those of you, sort of your readers uh, and, and listeners who don't know what collective intelligence is, it's the ability to harness an operating model at the end of the day. It's very simple. Just the, the same way Wikipedia harnessed theirs and kind of trounced 
you know, Encyclopedia Britannica, or the way YouTube and TikTok harnessed the crowd and trounced cable TV. At the end of the day, people, if you create a platform for innovation, if you give them a system of incentives, if you connect the right people, they're going to be able to actually do incredible things. We haven't scratched the surface of that thing. Now, increasingly, we can do it because we have technologies that allow us to do that. And that's my specific space. So collective intelligence has been a theme for quite some time. People at MIT and other places have worked on that for probably more than a decade. My focus is how does digital technology and artificial intelligence create an exponential trajectory whereby in collective intelligence methods and operating models will be adopted at scale way more than they used to be prevalent in the past. And I'll give you an example in my own world, since I have a foot at MIT on one side and we talk about you know, technologies and collective intelligence, and then the other foot is trying to stay relevant to an industry, which is the professional services, you know, uh, IT services uh, space that, that really moves fast. So what I try to do, for example, is to use collective intelligence methods to reskill the 100,000 people who work for us. So, you know, just uh, I did the math. I was given the job about three years ago. And the reason why I took the job is that you cannot get in innovation unless the rank and files have the new skills. Simple as that. So I took that job and I did the math. And you look at how much money you have and how much people you have and how fast the stuff that you're trying to impart moves. The only way to stay afloat is to democratize the creation and curation of knowledge and make sure that people embrace that knowledge in a non-hierarchical way, meaning that they shouldn't actually wait for, for anybody to wake them up uh, in the morning and send them to school, but really should do it in the flow of their work, just the way we look at our Twitter feed, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, collective intelligence is an extremely practical operating model for when you have problems whose economics, especially in the moment in which digital changes those economics, you know, economics are just they don't compute. And so that's a very simple example of how to use it. And, uh, and I do think that there's an incredible prosperous future for this. If you don't mind, I, I'm deeply fascinated by this. And um, uh, on this very podcast series, we had Ryan Merkley, the chief of staff at Wikipedia or Wikimedia mm. Foundation, uh, dear friend of ours. And then I used to work at, at Mozilla. So I've had my, my fair share of this as well. I'm, mm. I'm really deeply fascinated by this topic. I have two questions. Well, I've got many questions for you, but let's start with two. One would be, I'm just curious, and this came up a couple times earlier, as in the notion that very often when you think about innovation and disruption, particular disruption, ego seems to get in the way. Like this mm -hmm. idea that people have kingdoms to protect, moats to erect. Collective intelligence feels to me, in my experience at least, is that it really requires people to get over that ego part. First of all, you are totally right. I've actually been on record bruising people in conferences in North America where the notion of individual leadership is almost sacred, right? And you know, I lived in New York for 10 years and I'm fully uh, in, in love with the, with the dynamics of that world. But the reality is, if you look at the most successful companies, very rarely they are one person. Yes, there was Steve Jobs. Yes. And there's a bunch of other people. And nobody actually ever talked about them, but there were a bunch of other people. And so apart from the narrative and I think the histrionics, the idea really fundamentally is you don't want people to be stars. You want them to be galaxies. The, the power is 
in the connectivity between a bunch of A players who together create an all-star kind of uh, game. And an all-star kind of game that is so strong because everybody has their own quirks and their own specificities that just a combination of that thing stays fresh all the time because all of them will bring some orthogonal thing to the game every time and whenever they riff. I think of uh, jazz bands, the really good ones. You're going to have a guy who's coming in and because they have their network and they've actually been listening to the network, is bringing in a sound that the others never heard, but since they are used to play together, everybody will start riffing on that sound. And I think that the analogy actually carries in management teams as well. You need to have enough people who don't look exactly the same and at the same time are able to have enough of that connective tissue that allows them to interoperate well enough so that they can literally use each other as a transponder in a sensor into a much broader universe. You'll never be blindsided. I love the notion of the jazz band. It's a really, really beautiful metaphor. I'm curious, if you were to have the leader of a bigger company come to you today and say, I'm bored in, I love this, this is amazing, it sounds amazing, I want this, how do you get started? So, so that's a little bit of, unfortunately, today, I think the academic research has been three steps ahead of the actual use in business. And that's one of the reasons why I joined the forces of MIT. I spent a little bit of time there. and But at the same time, I, I keep more than one foot in on the other side. I pulled together personally a guidebook because I never found them. There's actually a bunch of books, really good books, books that you read and then you come back and you say, Eureka. What I was missing a little is a framework for, for getting it done. I mean, literally, business people, yeah, the, the, many of us have been consultants, they sh you show up and the first thing that you do on day one is these are the four or five work streams and this is the timeline and this is the people. And, and so what I would say is start with breaking down the problem into, I think, four parts. Right? So the first part of the problem is, you know, apart from something that comes before, which is what are you trying to do, right? What are you really, what is your pain point? All that kind of stuff that I think is a strategy. You know, that without the why, you, you don't know where you're going. But from a how to get it done perspective, the first job is identify your networks. Most companies still think that their networks are, well, actually don't even think, they see org charts and they say, that's not the network, but I don't have a better representation of my network. Right? So first job is, where are the people? Inside your company, outside your company, the skills, the power, how are they connected? Right? So first job. There's a bunch of tools to do that, by the way. It's not voodoo magic anymore. The second thing is design a set of incentives so that you enable people to do what is good. Not is just good for them, but good for the network. Right? The third aspect is to really reinforce the creation of knowledge feeders. When I talk about knowledge feeder, I talk about knowledge management of the past and knowledge management of the future. Today, people use knowledge management practices in a very cavalier way. So matter-of-factly, that it almost feels like yeah, the CIO will get there when they get there kind of thing. Oh, yeah, no, we have Microsoft Teams. It kind of does it, doesn't it? SharePoint, I have it, you know, that kind of things. Be religious with knowledge. Knowledge is currency. It needs to be stored properly. It needs to be detected properly. It needs to be crystallized properly. So creation of knowledge feeders outside of the company so the, the, you bring really granular 
feeders of, of knowledge into the company through your network, but also by powering up that network with tools. That's the number three, right? Now, how that's the work stream number three. Just make sure that you have those things in place and you're religious about it. The fourth aspect is fundamentally get people a playground so that they can work together. So I was talking about Microsoft Teams, Slack, anything that, and, and by the way, we've gotten better at it as humanity in the last 18 months. Because in the past, the playground was mostly a physical office, mm-hmm. which is fabulous, but it kind of cuts off the 99.9999 and whatever percent digit percentage of humanity that is not in your office at that time. If you create a platform for collaboration, the right people who have the right incentives, who have the right knowledge, come together. And you've heard this word before, ideas make babies like that, right? And so those are the four work streams that I would start putting in place, just a super high level. I'm curious, if we look at the yin to the yang, when you see organizations embark on this, because I think there's an awful lot to be learned from the common pitfalls, the stuff people stumble over, the don't do this because it has been it has been done a million times and it just doesn't work. What are the common pitfalls when companies do embark on this journey? Well, first of all, I don't think there's actually a zillion of companies that started thinking about this this way. I think some of some of the companies out there that we know of, for example, Amazon, this guy called Michael Arena, who used to be General Motors before, I mean, they do actually think that way. Like Amazon or not like Amazon, they actually kick ass in a bunch of areas and they've actually managed to establish that as a discipline. It kind of fits a little bit in between HR and organizational design. It's actually this kind of an amorphous place or also organizationally. So I think the first thing is don't make it just an HR job. Most organizations, HR groups are not capacitized for this. And so you need to find it a little bit of a, a place that is neither IT nor HR. The CEO will probably, many CEOs will probably not get there except smaller companies like companies like Automatic, Right? Some, some of the companies are small enough that can actually make it a, a distinctive competitive advantage, but don't just throw it into a bucket of, well, it sounds like HR, doesn't it? Or it sounds like a knowledge management job, I'll give it to the CIO. I think in, in the words of, unfortunately, a little bit fell, fell for grace, from grace, uh, Joey Ito at the um, MIT Media Lab, this is a complete antidisciplinary job. It's not even a cross-disciplinary job. It's an anticipate. It's a, it's a discipline that doesn't exist. It's part of organizational design. Yes. Well, so what? What does that tell me? So don't bucket it in the wrong place. And by not bucketing in the wrong place, don't choose a person who's actually bucketing themselves in the wrong place. Because you might actually have people come in with an IT slant or a chair slant. And at the end of the day, you need to have a group of leaders who are convinced that this is important so that they allocate the resources, but also they allocate the personal resources. I mean, networks open up when trust is created. And typically you have brokers of knowledge and trust that need to say, I like that idea, bring it on. I'll bring you into my town hall. I'm going to give you support. If people stonewall you, I'm going to make sure that they get treated differently. So that's the job, right? Just get the right people and, and the right support around them. Because this is going to be an organic job. It's not one of those where you send a memo to the company and they just install something and they just click execute. This is a, it's like a living organism. Some of these things is, it's like tending to your garden. I have tomato plants here in Berlin and now it's sunny. Tomatoes have a mind of their own. You put a stick and they go left or right. And the same is in networks of humans. 
even if you put machines to try controlling it, the only thing you can do is to make sure that you touch the high leverage points. We talked about four of them a moment ago. And a bunch of people try to constrain things with very long procedures and processes, etc. It, it's organic, so it won't cooperate beyond the point. So you got to find the right people with the right mindset. Kind of like getting to the the wrap up. Super fascinated about uh, your work. A couple couple points. One is uh, you said that you wrote a report. Is that publicly available for us? Yeah, very much. I even decided not to write a book because I like using contemporary technologies. <laughs> You'll find it at www.supermind.design. There's a short version and a longer version. The longer version actually deserves uh, because there's quite a lot of examples, quite a lot of analogies. People can use it in workshops and that kind of things. So it, it's all there. That's awesome. When you think about innovation, in particular disruptive innovation, it brings up an interesting question, which is at the end of the day, can you actually be thoughtful, planful and deliberate about it? Or is there a strong element of chance, surprise, serendipity in it? So Pascal, I think uh, system dynamics, the answer is yes and yes. But the reality is you can control this stuff. Hmm. I mean, if you look at the ecosystems around you, they look chaotic, but you actually, if you look more finally, you actually see very often some very elegant organizing principles. So clearly, if one doesn't know where the high leverage points are, the thing is going to stay chaotic for a long time. That thing is going to be out of equilibrium for the next 500,000 years. So like in all things, I mean, we all have DNA, but we all ended up, you can't tell from our DNA if I'm going to have certain characteristics, the same is going to apply there. But you can tell that you and I had a DNA that, that looks like a two ears animal and two eyes and one mouth. And like a, so I think you can get to that zip code yeah. by focusing on, on the high leverage points well enough. But yes, your daughter might have blue eyes and you were expecting brown eyes. That's the beauty of, of actually collectively intelligent systems. You don't quite know where they're going to land but you can kind of influence the trajectory, just like uh, children to some extent. My last question is slightly heretical. Knowing what you know and looking at the world the way you're looking at, do you believe that companies can actually do this? I mean, clearly there is companies which can do this, but by and at large. I mean, the answer is yes, a bunch of companies can do this. A bunch of companies have done this. <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of examples, even the in the guidebook about companies that are just killing everybody else because of that, right? I mean, it's like, like a, you know, Cambrian explosion killed everything before and then dinosaurs and then something else. And so that happens. The reality is many companies, you want to be heretical, we can be heretical, right? So there's going to be a need for generational change. Unfortunately, some generations of management were bred in an environment that was utterly hierarchical. So thinking about communities and ecosystems and how a system dynamic can be uh, harnessed, etc., goes completely against the grain of boxes and lines and memos. So if you want to spot the difference between a company that I think is ready for doing it or not ready for doing it, just look. Do they think that org charts and boxes and top-down incentives and diktats, etc., will change the thing. I think that's ready for the dustbin. I love that. I love the clarity about this. This is awesome. I will. I will actually ask my next my next set of clients that question. That's amazing, Johnny. 
amazing. I really, really enjoyed the conversation we had. I love all the metaphors you brought, tomato plants and DNA and people and the epigenetics of it. I love the concept. Clearly, I have to love the concept um, of collective intelligence. It's something uh, from the open source world we've been preaching for, for quite a while. And I think at least my experience is that still most companies look at it and don't really can wrap their heads around. So I'm I'm very hopeful that, particularly with your work, that we're getting to a point where this becomes more concrete, more clear, a, a bit more of a blueprint. So highly recommend anyone who's listening to this and just gets a tiny bit of interest in this, go read the report and uh, start experimenting with it. It feels to me something which you also have to build muscle memory around. It takes a little while for trying things out, seeing what sticks and what works, rather than let's design this beautiful system and it will work. I agree. You just made me think of something, again, we roughly the same. If you're in doubt, just ask your children if that makes sense to them. No, in, in 20 years, that's how the organizational design is going to be done. And by the way, they'll get it like this, right? They're going to say, look, yeah, I mean, that's what I use all day. You know, show me a, a hierarchical system and they'll say, no, that's maybe my physics classroom, but everything else is organized that way. They will get it, right? So the question is, will you and I get it? Hey, it's Pascal. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of Disrupt Disruption. If you want more, check out the other episodes we have on this podcast. Also know that this is part of an effort of us writing a book about disruption. So uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled towards that. And if you liked it, do us a favor. Go on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, and just like this. Um, there's some weird algorithm thing, which, you know, if you like it, they will like us. So do me a favor, do that. And if you've got any questions, any comments, anyone I should talk to, drop us an email. Um, easiest email address for me to reach it is P, just the letter P, at finet.com. With that being said, thank you so much for listening and I will hear you here soon.